This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Please be aware that this episode covers suicide, which some listeners may find triggering. In 2019, there were 5,691 registered deaths by suicide in England and Wales. That's an average of 18 suicides per day. Suicide is one of the first things police explore when someone goes missing. The missing person's mental state, previous attempts to take their own life, periods of depression, are all things considered in the early stages of a missing person's investigation. In today's episode, the possibility of suicide shadows our story. But we ask a broader question too. Whether we jump to the conclusion of suicide too quickly. Whether there are sometimes other explanations. And what we can do to help keep the people we love safe. That night I just burst out crying and I knew, I just knew. I just remember turning to my girlfriend at the time and saying, he's not coming back. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Kevin Fasting. I remember my dad vividly. He's just a very kind, kind man, basically. He was just a lovely man. Yeah, just very kind and gentle and just, yeah, an all-round good guy. The person you're hearing is called Kevin Fasting, and he's talking about his dad, also called Kevin. 
So for the purposes of today's episode, to avoid confusion, we'll call him Kevin Jr. Kevin Philip Fasting, and I'm the son of Kevin Edward Fasting, and he went missing in um, 2003. And currently, I am based down in London, um, but I'm from Liverpool, as you can probably tell by my accent. Kevin Jr. is extremely proud of where he comes from, a trait and a love he inherited from his dad. In fact, the city and its culture is the backdrop of our story. My mother and father, we had a little a little tiny house in Strathcona Road in Wavertree. You know, we weren't, I suppose, below the poverty line, but Liverpool in the 80s was a tough place anyway. So, you know, we didn't really have much money. We never went on, um, you know, foreign family holidays or anything like that. But in place of flights, there was football, a huge love of Kevin Jr.'s dad. My dad was an avid um, Liverpool fan. He's got a tattoo on his um, forearm, the, the LFC uh, Liverbird. For non-footy fans, the Liverbird is Liverpool's symbol, a cormorant raising its beak proudly. You can see it emblazoned on the city's coat of arms, as well as the Anfield Stadium and on the Liverpool kit. He went home and away to games since the... Uh, 60s, I think, 60s, 70s. So you see in Liverpool win the, f- the first four European Cups that they won, you know, countless League Cups and FA Cups. I was asking him to take me when I was five years old, so in 87. And uh, obviously Hillsborough happened in 89. So that's probably why he kept on saying no when I was little. It's because it wasn't really a safe place. He started taking me in, in the 90s when it, you know, become a bit safer. Um, so yeah, I've got some fond memories of going to Anfield with my dad as well. Kevin's work rooted him in the city as well. He worked for Liverpool Council for 25 years. He was a pool technician. He was responsible um, for the upkeep of all the kind of um, the swimming pools across all the public schools in, in Liverpool. So as a kid, we had some brilliant uh, memories where he'd take us uh, swimming each week. So every every Saturday and Sunday, me and my friends had the pick of um, any school swimming pool across Liverpool. Kevin's job was an anchor which the family were grateful for. I think it's a steady job as well. Like I say, back in the 80s, you know, there wasn't that many steady jobs about. So I think he did enjoy it, yeah. Kevin Jr. spoke to us at length about his many incredible memories growing up with two sisters, Sharon and Becky, his mum, Sheila, and of course, his dad, Kevin. I had a brilliant childhood. It was just full of love, essentially. I was very close to my parents, so I had a very, yeah, good memories growing up. It's the mid-90s. Liverpool FC were flying high. Kevin Jr. was 12, but his teenage years start on a sad note. Kevin's parents split up. They got divorced and that that obviously then split up the family home. And my mum remarried and then so my two sisters went with my mum and I stayed with my dad because I was always closer to, to my father. Kevin found the separation from his wife and his family incredibly hard. Initially, he lived in a flat, which wasn't particularly homely. Kevin Jr. remembers it as being dark and depressing. Eventually, Kevin moved back to the family home after his ex-wife moved to another house. But despite returning to familiar settings and comfort, things were still tough. I think he started slowly um, getting into a, a darker place, and it was maybe 
triggered, you know, from the separation of his, his family, I guess. He kept his job in the council up until, I would say, it was maybe late 90s, 2000, I think. Um, but I did start to notice a bit of a downward decline. Kevin Jr. was a teenager by now. His dad was resolutely his best friend. But living in such close proximity meant he couldn't escape the shifts and nuances of his father's moods and behaviour, even if they occurred gradually. He started, um, I suppose, drinking a little bit more. He was by no means an alcoholic, but he would never drink socially in the week or anything. Um, and then he started to just become a bit more reclusive, I guess. Um, not see as much of his friends as, as he used to. You know, just spend a lot of time in the house. The drinking exacerbated Kevin's low mood, and with it came a dramatic turn of events. There was a couple of times when I woke up um, in the morning and got him out of bed and he'd attempted to take his own life because he'd, he'd, he was on sleeping tablets, essentially, and I'd see their kind of empty sleeping tablet uh, packed next to him. Um, but I never knew whether it was serious or a cry for help. But I think I was too young to kind of fully understand. But I'd always go in and you know get him up in the morning and make sure he was okay. Because when he got sober, I'd say to him, you know, how selfish is that? You know, I'm, you know, if you you, you want to try and kill yourself and then you want your son to to find you in the morning. Um, so as a teenager, probably selfishly, you you know you react differently, so to speak. I mean, we were living in each other's pockets as well, so. You know, we were probably arguing a little bit at the time before I went away to university. In 2002, Kevin Jr. moved 70-odd miles from Liverpool to Leeds to study sports psychology. In the same year, Kevin Sr. quit his job at Liverpool Council. So two massive changes in his life occurring very close together. At that stage, I could definitely see a decline. Unbeknownst to me then, it, whilst I was in university, he'd actually attempted to take his life, which I found out later from my, my uncle. And these attempts had escalated in severity and seemingly intent since the ones Kevin Jr. witnessed when he was living at home. I think when the couple of times when I, when I found him, it was more of a cry for help because it was only, you know, it wasn't, He'd not ate like a whole box of sleeping tablets, so to speak, but you know, you're talking maybe eight, nine, ten. And then what happened when when I went was um, they couldn't contact them for a couple of days, and then my brother had to uh, force a door through in the end, and then and then found them, and they got the ambulance out um, and pumped his stomach, etc. So that was obviously you know much more much more serious. I wasn't told about this at the time because I was in university, and I think the family were trying to protect me. So many people speak about empty nest syndrome, a condition triggered by children leaving home. It's a discourse very much directed to women, to mothers, which can leave men out of the conversation. Alone and increasingly reclusive, Kevin wasn't surrounded by people he could speak to. Coupled with the local ideal of what masculinity looked like back in the 90s, Kevin Jr. feels like his father massively internalised his emotions. At the time, when you're a kid, you don't you don't realise. I think, or I mean, you do realise, but you don't you don't think how profound it can be necessarily until you know maybe you're an adult. But again, I think it's probably more common with men. You, you know, you try and bottle bottle up the, the emotions, so to speak. So 
I'm sure it has had, you know, an effect on me and, you know, maybe, you know, my friends and people close to me, some of them comment that, you know, it could come out one day in regards to whether I'm going to have a breakdown. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm not, but yeah, you know, it does have a profound effect. I think thinking back at the time, you know, it wasn't, I, I don't remember feeling, um, it was more anger. Despite a family who loved him very much, Kevin Jr. believes that his father might have felt like there was a lack of support and understanding around what he was going through. When he attempted to take his life the final time before he went and then he moved into um, my nan and granddad's, that's when then he started to um, to see someone professionally, I think. Before that, I think he was just under, he got prescribed sleeping tablets and that was it. I think as well, you know, this, you're talking nearly 20 years ago now, so mental health awareness has come a long way, certainly in the last five, six years, especially in the last 20 years. So don't think the support was there, to be honest. Kevin was assigned to a therapist through the NHS, something Kevin Jr. only discovered in recent years after clearing out some of his dad's belongings. I collected all his stuff and there were some notes from when he was seeing a therapist and it was asking him certain questions, you know, how he felt around the time and stuff. And it was quite upsetting to read actually because he said he couldn't really face his kids because he felt like he'd let them down and he was a failure. As well as working through Kevin's troubled thoughts and improving his mental state, the intention of this therapy programme was also to improve his lifestyle. I believe that through this programme that they put him on, it was then a kind of back-to-work programme also. Um, so it was getting people back on the feet, essentially. They got him a job. It was Meals on Wheels where he was delivering meals to um, the disadvantaged, I think it was. Um, and that was a kind of pathway back into work. But the introduction of structure and routine through his new job at Meals on Wheels didn't have the effect that everyone hoped. I think that was just a bit too quick to kind of get him back out on his feet into the into the real world. And I think he he obviously just couldn't, you know, he thought he was going to let us down again, couldn't handle the stress. And then that's when he decided to, to leave. And then it was his second week of that, that's when he went missing. Kevin Jr. was still at uni in Leeds in his second year, and his dad had come up to visit him a couple of times. Kevin came to look round his son's halls of residence and they went for a couple of meals, as well as walks around the Leeds Canal. Kevin Jr. knew his father had continued to struggle with his mental health. So when he found out he'd started working again, Kevin Jr. was thrilled. It was quite positive because he was getting back on, on his feet and it seemed like he was, you know, um, from the outside looking in at that stage, that he was, you know, making progress, making signs of progress. So when on the 21st of November 2003, his sister called and told him that their dad was missing. Yeah, it was a complete shock. Uh, I remember on the Friday, it was uh, my nan called me up and said, um, oh, have you heard from your dad today? So I'm in Leeds and um, I said, no, no, no. Why? And she said, oh, he's not turned up for where? And I said, oh, I'll be fine. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about. And she's like, um, but she sounded really worried. And then it kind of dawned on me and I thought, well, if she's really worried, there's something she's not telling me. So I got a coach back to, to Liverpool the next day when he's still not turned up. You know, because at first you assume he's got into an accident or, you know, something out of the ordinary. This time, Kevin Jr. had a feeling something was very different to the times before. Something had shifted and it triggered a memory of a few weeks before. 
I do remember the last time I seen my dad as well, which was weeks before that. As I left, he always waited at the door until he got to the end of the road and then waved. And um, the last time when when he did that, I just had, I didn't say it to myself, but it just felt like a goodbye. It was just very, very, very strange. So when he got a call from his sister, the shadow of a thought which had been lurking in the background immediately became clear. That night, I just burst out crying and I knew, I just knew. I just remember turning to my girlfriend at the time and saying, he's not coming back. And I just knew it. So then I just, the next day, I just, um, I booked the coach and just went, went straight back. But you just have one of those good feelings. Kevin Jr. travelled home and headed straight to his grandma's house, where his father had been staying. He was met by his nan, granddad and his sisters. The atmosphere was that of like panic. Um, and then, you know, I tried to reassure them and I said, look, wipe your tears. I said, no, I don't want to see you crying. No, we're going to find him. I'm back. And, you know, I took on the kind of father role there. But then Kevin Jr. was told something that confirmed his worst fears. I was told that he'd left a note for us, essentially saying that he was leaving. It was just short and sweet, really. The note was addressed to me and my sisters and sorry that he's let us down. You know, that was being good children, but that, that he has to go and, you know, and just ordering us to enjoy our lives. You can imagine the immediate reaction to the note. It's clear that Kevin has left of his own accord, potentially to take his own life. But contrary to suicide being a foregone conclusion, or an inevitability, it becomes the reason that an urgent response is even more rapid. Because in this case, it could mean the difference between life and death. So let's unpick the circumstances of that day. So he's working for Meals on Wheels. He'd get up in the morning before me nan and granddad, and then he'd um, he'd go and get the bus on Egworth Road over to Bootle, where then he'd he'd, um, he'd get picked up and then he'd start his job. So that morning, the Friday morning, um, was the end of his first week. So he left um, as usual. He went to the end of the road, um, and then that was the last that we heard of him. When Kevin didn't turn up for work, Meals on Wheels phoned his mum and dad. They would have been alerted first, and then I think I was called about, I was in the gym at the time, but I think it was like mid-morning, late morning. Um, so they were obviously, they would have been panicking and calling around to see if anyone's heard, heard from them. No one had. The next port of call was the police. I believe that my, my family notified the police the first day, but then they said we have to come back in 24 hours because when it's an adult... They go on their own accord. So I think there's a high high majority of missing adults who will then, you know, be found within a day. The following day, a Saturday, the police came to start taking statements. But Kevin Jr. and the family were impatient. They couldn't just sit back and wait. So they decided to do some investigating themselves. So the first week when I, when I come back, we were trawling through the CCTV cameras ourselves. So we, I think it was myself and my auntie, we saw CCTV cameras from the lane in Bootle, where he got the bus from, and we couldn't find them. We couldn't find them on that. So there was no sign of them from, from that side of things. And again, this was 20 years ago. So this was, you know, before you had Ringo's on people's doors and things like that and dash cams and stuff. So if Kevin hadn't got on the bus and made the journey nearer to his work, where had he gone instead? So from when he left the house... 
we literally don't know whether he went right to onto Edwards Road or you can you can do a left and you can go towards the promenade, which is um where the River Maze is. And also the ferry port, 15 minutes from Kevin's home, which made the fasting family wonder whether Kevin might have decided to leave England altogether. He could have gone to various destinations from Liverpool, including the Isle of Man and Ireland. We contacted the ferry companies as well, so we got the CCTV from, you know, to see if he got on a ferry, because he didn't take his passport either before that, so he couldn't have gone on a plane or, or gone abroad. So we just tried to look at all the, you know, possible avenues and places that, that he went. And if Kevin had indeed turned left, the route would have taken him down to the promenade, which anyone from the local area knows well. Um, it's a lot of wooded area that you could hide yourself in, and then also you've got the River Mersey there as well. So, you know, if someone was suicidal and was going to look of a way to, uh, to end their own life, then that would have been, you know, that was obviously uh, a big area to search. I remember being in the promenade and I used to play there when I was a kid with my mates. So I'd know all the areas and there's some like outhouses in there, which is like right in the middle of like the forests, um, which were former toilets like used 50 years ago. And I remember, cause I used to, you know, we used to be climbing them as kids. So I remember being there at like 12 midnight looking for my father. Um, and then the police helicopters going above my head with like the lights flashing and stuff. And so, you know, it was quite surreal. It was surreal those times and it, it you know it was a weird one because you're there but you're looking you're looking for a body essentially you're not out in the middle of the woods really looking you know to find someone alive the police were immediately alerted and a search team was established manpower dogs and helicopters were all deployed when the police first got involved that was you know that was where they were looking to start with the fasting family, Kevin's friends, and a large number of local residents all sprang into action. I didn't return back to uni that year because I stayed in Liverpool to kind of join the search, search with them. So I took a year out of university myself and then I went back the following year. But I felt like the best place for me to be was around my family and, and my sisters. You know, we were all looking for him and waiting for him to come back and hoping that he would come back. I was driving around the streets with my mates, borrowing their cars or going in their cars. They would be up all night with me for the first week and we were driving around. And ironically, we'd, we'd get stopped by the police a couple of times because it looked dodgy. So if Kevin had been successful in taking his own life, something he'd tried numerous times before, the most likely place in the police's mind was the River Mersey. Now the police said, you know, the only... The only way he would have been able to end his own life and then hide his body essentially is if he would have, you know, went into the River Mersey and then went off into the Irish Sea. But the odds of that happening, they said, were still very, very low. And the longer that time passed without a body being discovered, rather than escalating fear, it actually increased the fasting family's hopes that Kevin might, in fact, be alive and well. As time goes on and you don't find a body, then you start to think, well, maybe he's just left and, you know, he's he's moved away or he's, um, you know, he's living on the street. Well, do you know what? He could be alive here and he's made a choice. You know, he's made a choice. He he, he felt embarrassed that he'd let people down, um, that maybe, you know, he wasn't ready to go back to work and he didn't want to continue to be a left down in his eyes, even though he, you know, absolutely wasn't a left down. And then you think, well, maybe he's out there. He didn't take his passport. 
he so he could he couldn't go abroad. Um, that's pretty obvious. He didn't take any he didn't take any of his bank cards either, and his um, bank's not being touched. So again, the only thing you think is if he has gone, you know, if he is still alive, then he's he's probably living on the streets somewhere and I tried to put myself in his position. And you think, right, well, if that is the case, you had no money, you're homeless, where would you go? You know, you don't want to be found either, so you wouldn't be in Liverpool. The lack of a body compounded the fasting's belief that Kevin was still out there. If I said to anyone, you know, I'm going to give you a task, go and kill yourself with minimal planning and and make sure your body's never found, it would be a really, really difficult task. Um you know, unless you're a criminal mastermind. So if, if I was thinking about it that way, I started to think to myself, well, if he did die, then 99% he would have been found, his body would have been found. The police and the public response soon died down, dwindling into dormancy. As with so many missing persons cases, there weren't the resources to maintain the initial effort, especially after all the leads had been exhausted. After a couple of days, then, you know, the helicopters get called off and the police kind of presence calms down a little bit, again, because it's an adult and because they can't continue to put all the resources into, into that, you know, comparable if it was a child. The fasting family tried to keep momentum up wherever they could. Then we started doing social media campaigns. After a couple of weeks, we've done a press conference as well. Um, and we've done some work with ITV, Granada News. Kevin Fasting from Liverpool disappeared amid mental health issues 15 years ago. He went to work like any other day, but never returned. You know, that's part of my job now is to, to keep talking to my daughters about him. So, you know, they're, they're five and seven now, so I, I continually tell them the story. Daddy's daddy went away because he was sad. You know, a typical press conference, as you would get when there's a missing person, like appealing for him, um, that I attended, I was I was on that one. So then it starts to, you start to change the way you search, which is more, you're appealing for, you know, anyone who's seen him, anyone who might see him now, what he might look like. You, you're obviously appealing to my dad himself. And we've had a couple of kind of, like, false sightings. Not so many, but we've had a couple along the years when we'll do like a another appeal on ITV or the, or ITV News will cover the story. We might get um, you know a few people come coming in and saying they've spotted them and stuff, but that gives you some hope. But none of it's ever um, ever turned out, you know, to be to be solid evidence or anything. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There was one particularly dramatic incident early in the first few years of Kevin's disappearance. We had one false alarm was, obviously I've got the same name as my father and I'm in the same bank as him in Barclay. So this is 20 years ago as well, back in the day before you've got like photo ID. And in university, I took out a couple of hundred pounds to pay my rent from my bank and, and showed my ID card, which is not like a... I think it's just my national insurance. Now, they mistakenly took that money out of my father's account 
So we got an alert there, so we were all quite excited because it looked like my dad had took money out. And then when we found out where it was, it was from Leeds Bank that I go to. So I looked into it, realised what happened. So it was a bit bittersweet, really, because we went from one hand, you know, thinking we'd found them, to then the next. The police were being a bit accusational, you know, as if we'd done it on purpose, took the money out on purpose. And even when we were explained the whole situation. So, yeah, it went from, you know, promising news to then just a, a bit of a kick in the teeth. And four years ago, an even more promising lead emerged. Kevin Jr. received a message from a couple of women who ran a homeless charity, telling him that they believed they knew his dad. And he said, look, we've had this guy in over the years and we believe it's your dad. So, you know, clearly we all got very, very excited because they were absolutely certain. And then they sent us a, a picture of the guy. Was this it? Was this the breakthrough they'd all been waiting for? Kevin Jr. was sceptical. I just knew it wasn't my dad. And he said, well, look, you know, come and see him because you can change a lot. You know, if he's lived on the streets for 20 years. We went and met him, obviously, it wasn't my dad. So that was one um, false alarm. With every false alarm, you would think that hope fades. But any lead still makes Kevin Jr. spring into action, however slim the possibility of it turning into something tangible. One of my friends from university, he sent me a link. He'd just seen a random news story and it was in Bournemouth. It was, um, it was a homeless guy um, called Kevin. And he, um, he froze to death, basically. And he was similar age to what my dad would have been. His name was Kevin. When I was speaking to the, the liaison down there who knew of this homeless person, you know, everything sounded like it was my father, um, 100%. Like, even down to his accent and the way he spoke. And, but then, you know, we got the conclusive evidence when he'd done the autopsy and then there wasn't a tattoo on his arm. Many times across this podcast... We've heard from people who speak about the conflicting emotions of wanting to know about the fate of their loved one, whilst also desperately not wanting to hear the worst. But the impact never gets less heartbreaking. It's, it's really difficult because when I found out it wasn't him, you know, you, I broke down in tears. But then it's, it's mixed emotions because you think, why am I crying? Because it means I've not got confirmation that my dad's dead. But there must be a part of me wanting, wanting that closure. I, I know friends who have lost their parents and it's so definitive, you know, from one second of the day to the next they're not. And I never, and I suppose I never had that pain. I was always, I was always given a hope, given a chance type of thing. So it's never like ripping the, the band-aid off, so to speak. So in, in that sense, it wasn't as difficult as maybe if someone just said, oh, you, your dad's being killed. But on the other hand, Although it's a bit of a softer pain, it's, it's a more relentless pain because it's there for the rest of your life. It's not only the lack of a body being discovered which has changed Kevin Jr.'s mindset about what happened. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, he feels very differently about the note. What felt like a foregone conclusion when they first read it now feels much more open to interpretation. When you read a note like that, you just instantly think it's a suicide note. You know, as, as you can imagine, if someone says, you know, enjoy your lives, I've let you down, goodbye. You know, it's a suicide note, so you automatically, you're waiting to find the body. It's like a waiting game to, to find the body. Certainly in the first week, that's how we all felt. I don't think it was a suicide note. 
now looking back but at the time you know it did it certainly felt like that you know someone was depressed tried to take their own life before and then left a note saying Go, goodbye from kevin jr's point of view his dad had so much to live for and was surrounded by so many people who loved and admired him he's got sisters he's got three sisters he's got a brother he's got you know daughters he's got me um he's got parents i've had two kids since as well i've had two daughters so i think he's just he's just gone and he's just kept on traveling and you know i, I think he'd be too proud to come back you know even if he is if it was in a better space i think he'd be too dad was a proud guy as well and i think he'd be too proud to to come back so i do believe that he was probably you know living on the streets for a while and or maybe in shelters and um, but i believe that he probably would have went you know, as far away as he could. Kevin Jr. tries to honour his dad every day. He tells his daughters, 10-year-old Sienna and 8-year-old Isabel, about their grandfather all the time. He's even named his business after Kevin. I think what I've done, I've chose to, to honour his memory because he was a, a selfless man. So as I graduated and I got into my sector, I've now set up my own business and um, I've named it after my father. Um, and then, you know, I remember writing down the mission statement and it was all about his values, kind of trust, honesty, respect, hard work, uh, loyalty, um, and then continue his name and continue his, his legacy, so to speak. And of course, Kevin Jr. has made sure that his dad remains close to his beloved football team. When we built the new the new part of the ground, um, we had the opportunity, you can buy a, um, it's like a plaque on the floor. So I've, I've bought a plaque, um, which has got a little message to my dad. So every time I go up, I can, I can go and view that as well. And that'll be there forever outside the stadium. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Missing. If you know what happened to Kevin, or if you remember seeing someone like him in Liverpool, on November the 21st, 2003, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Kevin before listening to this episode, you could still help. We've put the details of this case on our website, themissingpodcast.org. On there, you'll find images and details, not just for this case, but for every case we featured on the show. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases, with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. And you'll find more information about the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. 
Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.